Hello everyone and welcome to Founders Ascent. My name is BJ and I'm here with Gavin and we're discussing 12 Rules for Life by Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. Gavin, what are your first thoughts about this book? I really did like this book. It it was solid. There are a lot of great ideas that Jordan Peterson shares with us. It is very dense at times and this is one of those books that I think you're going to have to read multiple times to fully understand the content that he's sharing with us. And BJ and I are going to attempt to unravel everything that he says in all of his chapters to the best of our abilities. Granted, we did read the book only once. So bear with us here as we talk about chapters one through six. Yeah. So this book is extremely dense and we just did not have time in one week to come through all of it. So for the first time, we're splitting it up into two parts, which you've probably noticed from the title. But we'll be taking care of the first six chapters, giving you a nice introduction to the book. And if you like it and like what you're hearing, you have time to read the other six chapters before we start next week. Uh, once again, our episodes come out Tuesday at noon, so be sure to check them out. And we're going to jump right in to chapter one and the first law of the 12 law rules for life, which is stand up straight with your shoulders back. And it, Dr. Peterson spends a lot of time talking about how with lobsters, when they are fighting over territory or fighting for a mate, what the, if one of them gets defeated, they are physically diminished. Like... They get depressed, they lose all sense of courage, and if they are challenged again, they'll just break off and uh, avoid fighting. And in the hierarchy, they're just reduced. And so it's incredibly important for you to have confidence to, to be able to actually prog progress above and do great things. Because if you don't have the confidence to even start, you can't make any progress at all. And the, the main reason why he brings up lobsters in this chapter is because lobsters have been around for, at least to our knowledge, like 350 million years. And they do a really good example in, in showing the fact that hierarchies have been around since practically the, the beginning of biology. And I think... Peterson's argument here is that there's pretty much nothing that you or I are really going to be able to do to get rid of these hierarchies. So what he's trying to teach us is a few ways we could build our confidence in order to hopefully get as high within the dominance hierarchy as we can. And the title of this chapter is called Stand Up Straight With Your Shoulders Back, like BJ was talking about. And well, why do you want to stand up straight with your shoulders back? Well, we believe that standing up straight with your shoulders back is going to give you a little bit of extra confidence. And when people see that you look like a more confident person, like if, if you if you see a person walking by that's slouched and and sort of and sort of not taking up as much space as they could be, you may not have as much respect for them, or you may not look at them as the most confident individual as a result of that. And so we believe that he, he does share this piece of advice with us in order to 
gain that confidence in order to hopefully get you a little bit higher within that dominance hierarchy. Yeah, and there's a really interesting study done by the Ophelia Project, which is a national nonprofit organization, but focusing on relational aggression. But one of the things they did was they gave a class of students, each student was given a list, but half the class had a different list from the other half. And their job was, it was a list of three words, and they had to rearrange the words into another word. And so one group, their first word was wool, and the other one was bat. And so the second group easily got tab, and they were instructed to raise their hands when they completed it. So half the class raised their hands quickly, while the other half were left behind, and they were asked to move on to the next word. The first group got slapstick. The second group got lemon. Lemon, melon, change two letters, it's pretty easy. And so they quickly raised their hands. And by the time they got to the third word, the first group had learned to be helpless. And when they were given cinerama, they couldn't find the word American where the second group was commonly able to find American, even though they were given the same word. And it's because the first two words they were given were impossible. They couldn't solve it, but because they saw half the class solve it easily, they thought, oh, I'm just helpless. And so by the time they got to the third word, if they tried, they couldn't do it just because they, they somewhere deep they understood or they believed that they just couldn't succeed, that they just weren't good at this. And so Recognizing that and recognizing how failure, failures can actually have that deep of an impact and you can actually learn to be helpless means that it's really important for you to have the confidence to recognize that you had failures in the past and learn from those, but keep on moving forward and keep on uh, making your improvements and understand that you actually have a lot of control over your life, if not total control over your life. But, and, and that's a difficult and painful assumption to make, to say, I'm in control of every bad thing that happens to me, which probably isn't true, but taking that accountability and looking to find ways to improve your life is much better than just wallowing in sorrow as you believe that you have no control and can't do anything. And the nihilism that comes from that and depression and everything else that would leave you helpless avoiding that by taking responsibility and rather than letting failures drag you down but actually holding yourself up and standing up straight with your shoulders back I think is really important and hand in hand with that having self-respect and um, believing that you're someone worthwhile and that's you're capable of making improvements and that you're worth taking care of really goes into the next chapter, which is treat yourself as if you're someone you're taking care of, uh, which is treat yourself like you're, you're responsible, sorry, treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping. And, um, and here, uh, Dr. Peterson talks about how 
when people get medication, about one third don't even fill the prescription. And another third choose not to um, take it regularly. But if their pets get sick, they immediately fill their prescription, force the dog to, or cat to take it and take care of their pet better than they take care of themselves, which is a really awful thing when you think about it, that people don't feel like they deserve to be helped, but they feel like their animals do. Yeah, and in, in, in here in this chapter, he brings up, or essentially his rationale behind this is the fact that you're going when you take a step back and acknowledge everything you've done you know to the fullest extent every wrongdoing that you've ever done and you know all your disadvantages you know all your weaknesses better than anybody else and if i were to take a look at somebody else that i hardly know I guess even in this example, I could say, let's pretend I, I take a look at somebody that I know very well. I still don't know to the fullest extent what their weaknesses are, what threats they have, every wrongdoing that they've ever done is. And because of this simple fact, you're probably going to treat other people a little bit better than how you treat yourself because you know every wrongdoing you've ever done and because of that you almost view yourself as a fallen creature in that sort jordan peterson does talk a lot about genesis in this rule here in rule two about how we're fallen creatures he talks about the garden of eden with with the snake and whatnot and Generally speaking, you're not going to look at yourself as highly as you would other people because of the simple fact that you know everything that you've ever done wrong. Yeah, and so taking care of yourself does not necessarily always mean do what makes you happy. It means do what's going to make you better tomorrow. And what's not going to help you is constantly comparing yourself to other people and believing that um, you, you're, you're somehow lesser than everyone else and so it's your job to take care of everyone else and self-sacrifice until you're nothing. It, it's a form of self-punishment that's not actually beneficial to society. You need to take care of yourself before you can take care of other people. Because if you're taking care of other people, people you care about, they care about you too. And seeing you in pain doesn't help them as much as you think you should. And so it's really important that you are mindful about comparing yourself to other people because when you do that, you're always gonna have an imperfect perspective. And so it's gonna make it harder to care for yourself when you're idolizing everyone else as somehow better, even though basically we're all the same just somehow at the same time completely unique which sort of brings us into law three which is make friends with people who want the best for you and 
that's difficult to define, but almost always you should be searching to find friends that are better than you, that uh, you can sort of learn from and look up to and go through challenges together and become better by your association. I mean, that's the point of having communities and friends and society is that together we're able to do a lot more than any one of us individually, uh, the, where the parts are greater than the whole. And one thing that is worth avoiding, while you're looking to make friends with better people, one thing that you certainly need to avoid is what's called parasocial relationships, which often emerge uh, or have emerged particularly with the rise of streaming, where the streamer just views all the, the viewers as like an audience. They're not, and they may recognize them and know, recognize their usernames, but largely they're just their audience and just people that they're trying to entertain. But the viewers, they think that they have a close connection with the streamer and the other people in chat. They're thinking, oh, this is just gaming with the boys. It's not, you know, it, it's not like sports. Where sports, there's a clear definition between the athletes and the audience where no one in the audience feels a particularly co close connection to a single athlete generally. But with streaming, that sort of goes away and it becomes a sort of one-sided relationship where one person feels that they're super close to the other person, where the other person feels that they're distant and it's just fundamentally, the audience is just people that they're trying to show off to and entertain and then get their status from. And so avoiding those is ha one of the important parts of making friends that with people that want the best for you. As BJ was saying, he was saying that your goal should be to surround yourself with people that are perhaps better than you in some ways and you want to immerse yourself into environments where there are a bunch of good people that are perhaps already doing the trait that you want to pick up off of them. But one thing that I do like that Jordan Peterson does bring up in this chapter is that it's pretty difficult to do this. And, and I've heard this brought up by a bunch of people, how you want to surround yourself with the quote unquote ideal, you know, sur surround yourself with healthy people, but that's very difficult. And, and Jordan Peterson does bring this up. He says, don't think that it is easier to surround yourself with good people than with bad unhealthy people. It's not a good, healthy person is an ideal. It requires strength and daring to stand up near such a person. You have to have courage to stand up next to an ideal. That's an extremely difficult thing to do. And sometimes what can happen is if you do gain the motivation for a small period of time to stand up next to an ideal, you stand up next to them and you sort of lose that motivation. You lose that courage. You'll start to compare yourself to them. And this could have pretty negative effects on your life because you're comparing yourself to a person that's probably years ahead of you in some aspects. And I don't think that's necessarily fair. And so surrounding yourself with people that are a lot better than you can in fact hurt you, which is kind of a pessimistic way of looking at it, but you definitely need to understand this before you step up to people like this. 
an example that I have in my own life of this particular example of surrounding yourself with ideals is actually last year with a couple of my roommates. So there were three of us. It was me, roommate one, and roommate two, we'll call them. And now, a year later, all three of us are living in separate areas. Not that we have any hard feelings towards each other, but that's just kind of how it is. We all separated. It, it made sense given the circumstances. And roommate one has three new roommates. And I remember earlier this year, roommate one was saying that he is glad that he doesn't live with me and roommate two anymore. And the reason why he was saying that is because me and roommate two were often always busy focusing on projects at hand, grades, and we were focusing on bettering ourselves. We were big readers and, and, and so on and so forth. And he often found himself comparing himself to us. And he, you know, didn't like being compared to us. And so I think this example makes perfect sense because I have seen it in my life. And I do like how Jordan Peterson does bring this simple truth up to his, his readers here because it is very real and we need to make sure that we're we're looking at this. Fantastic. And so that brings us into rule four, which is you should compare yourself to who you were yesterday and not who someone else is today. And if you really think about it, un unless you are literally the best in the world, there is always going to be someone who makes you look incompetent at whatever you do. And that is worsened to some extent by social media, which means you're seeing not, you, where previously you would only see the people nearby and you could be the best in your community. Now you are competing with the world in just about anything you do. You, you can quickly find the best in the world online and see their accomplishments and then take a look at yours and yours are nothing in comparison. And so it's really important to avoid the sort of crushing sensation that you're never going to rise up to where those people are today because you need to be focused on yourself and improving yourself from yesterday to even, because from there you can reach those sorts of levels of accomplishment. And also you should keep in mind that everything you see on social media is edited. If it's not edited in Photoshop or like, actually applying filters and making it look different. It's edited in the choice of uh, content produced, whether that's, you know, choosing the three best photos out of 30. You don't see the tw other 27, you only see the three. And so you think, oh, they're so attractive. But there's 27 pictures that make them look not that great. Or in writing or in video or in anything else, there's always when you have time to produce content, you have time to edit it, you have time to make decisions about what you post and don't post. And so social media, to some extent, eliminates the faults, but only eliminates the faults from perception. You just don't see them. It's not that they, they aren't there. And so by focusing on who you are and how you can improve your own life, you're able to then actually see improvements rather than being just crushed by the fact that you aren't where everyone else is. 
I can say this personally, since I was a little kid, I was always reading at a higher reading level than um, I was supposed to be at. But when it came to writing, I was crushed that my writing did not look like Harry Potter or Rick Riordan's writing or anything else. It looked like complete trash. And so I'm like, oh, I'm just a bad writer because I was comparing myself to published books in elementary school. So for the longest time, I, I've been suffering from just not thinking that I'm a very good writer or communicator because I, I be, because my basis of comparison wasn't improving my own writing, it was, oh, I'm not as good as other people who do this really well, so I'm just not able to improve. That's, I've been able to improve that and get, um, realize, oh, I'm actually a decent writer and communicator. But it's, looking back, it's so absurd that I would think that um, I was not a good writer just because I couldn't produce works of Shakespeare. And so uh, I, I'm not, another thing that sort of um, y you should keep track of when watching uh, being on social media is uh, you're going to see everyone else doing great things that can inspire you, but also can distract you because you see, oh, this person is doing this little venture or startup or side hustle. And you're working on your own thing, but you're seeing this guy have success and you're like, oh, maybe I should try that. Maybe that's easier. And the thing, thing about social media and the thing about I guess success in general is you don't see all the work that goes into it. Most of the time you only see the results and then no one really pays attention to the work. So don't, when you're looking at social media, don't lose yourself in what you're looking at and thinking, oh, everything else is better than what I'm currently doing. Figure out just how, focus on what you're doing. Focus on how you can improve your own state and how you can find the success you want, and then from there, move up to, um, actually from there, don't move up. Continuously do that. Continuously improve yourself from where you were yesterday. And that's guaranteed to be far better than trying to compare yourself to the best or getting distracted by mm -hmm. other people's success. And this really ties into the first book we reviewed, uh, Atomic Habits, where 1% improvements stack up and you just focus on the little changes. What can you do today to improve your life? And then from there, you move up to higher order things, more difficult things. But you gotta start with the small stuff, start with the little wins uh, that you can do right now and watch those little incremental improvements stack up and have massive exponential growth as you're consistently doing this every day. And it's something that you're going to have to learn. It's something that maybe it's going to take you deleting social media for you to stop comparing yourself to other people. But figuring out what it takes to just make those small changes and improve every day, I don't know how you're supposed to pursue self-improvement without doing that, without setting 
benchmarks based off where you are right now in your current situation and making improvements within that context. Yeah, and you want to, I guess chapter four kind of reminds me in a sense of the book we read last week with the alchemist and how the alchemist, like the theme in the book is follow your own personal legend. And I think you can really get thrown off course sometimes in following your personal legend if you're scrolling through social media a lot because you see a bunch of random events that these other people are posting and as bj was saying oftentimes that they are edited and that you don't see the full extent of the the story based on the few images that they have handpicked and posted on social media so sometimes we'll look at what other people are doing and we'll think man that looks really cool and we'll sort of lose sight of the particular project that we were focused on initially when maybe the project that we were focused on initially is what we were truly meant to be doing rather than finding something random on social media and thinking that that's your your new calling in life when maybe you're you're already a few years into the project that you were working on so i think we need to mitigate our exposure to social media for that particular reason with the one percent improvements and the little changes jordan peterson does talk about this a lot and he says you need to find something that's going wrong in your life find a problem okay and then once you found the problem in your life ask yourself is it something that you would change Okay, and if your answer to that question is yes, then you move on to the third question, which is, is it something that you can change? Okay, and if you say yes to all three of those questions, is it a problem? Is it something that you would change? Is it something that you can change? If you say yes to all three of those questions, okay, I don't want you saying yes to two and following through. You need to say yes to all three questions. And if you can say yes to all three of those questions, it's something that you need to focus on doing. Now, if this particular problem is extremely large, then trying to tackle the entire problem by itself is probably not the best route, okay? You need to start very, very small. And in Atomic Habits, it's this lesson here, this narrative is, is extremely clear. You want to make these small improvements to your life to hopefully fix said problem or achieve this, this desired outcome in the end. And so you, there are a bunch of little tricks that he does teach us in Atomic Habits, the other book that we read, uh, I guess it's been how many weeks now? It's been a while now, that huh? That was early December, I think. But yeah, that book is really good. And, and I have seen a lot of overlap with Atomic Habits and a lot of books that we've read after that one uh, another overlap that we haven't talked about but uh with relation to this and um making those uh, setting this habit of um just your own self-improvements in in little ways the key to setting a habit is uh partially at the end reward yourself for it figure out what if, if i do this small little thing to improve my life what small little thing can i get and negotiate with yourself. Oh, if I don't do this, then I won't do that. And uh, figuring out what's the appropriate reward and what reward results in the most effective change in your life. 
because uh, this is something you sent me a couple weeks ago. The where Steve Jobs was talking about how I, you you you'll be able to find it. It's a really fantastic little clip. But he's talking in an interview, and he says that something really really important happens when you realize that the world is malleable. When it's something that you can poke holes in and play in and have an impact. And so. I, I feel like another important thing is when you realize that, and I think an important thing when um, the first humans realized was y you can sacrifice stuff and then m make your life a whole lot easier, easier and negotiate with reality. Yeah, and so essentially what Steve Jobs was talking about is he was saying that when you're younger, you're told that the world is the way it is and you shouldn't necessarily bounce into the walls too much. Try to stay within the oh, con. That's my little brother. <laughs> stay within the the confines of the world, and 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 this is that way, and and that is this way, and and there's not much you can really do to to change it. But he says you need to to gain this understanding and take out that erroneous notion that we were talking about earlier. You need to focus on the fact that you actually can change the world and that you can push on the world and it'll actually respond you can change it you can make the world a better place and it was a very short video i think it was like two minute video but very dense with with information but that's essentially the essence of what he was talking about in that particular clip yeah i i really appreciated that and so uh yeah, compare yourself to who you were yesterday. Understand that you can negotiate with reality and make sacrifices and decisions that can actually have an improvement and forget about everyone else's success. It's not going to help you. The next chapter, chapter five, rule five, is do not let your children do anything that would make you dislike them, which neither one of us are parents. Okay, yeah, neither one of us are parents, but I will say... Besides that, I think this still was one of my favorite chapters in the book because even if you're not a parent, I think you could still pick up a thing or two in this chapter and you could even apply it towards the relationships that you have with your friends. I guess really any relationship that you have in your life, you could you could apply some of the things that he does teach us. Yeah, I, in this I completely chapter. agree. The, this chapter was fantastic and I'm surprised how often all this entrepreneurial advice and self-improvement advice also gets thrown in with parenting advice. Like, um, a, a definition is of a, a, a startup is an organization that produces goods or service that is under extreme uncertainty. And I think a family might also qualify as a startup in producing people under extreme uncertainty of whether those people turn out as decent human beings for society. So um, the real essence of this chapter is a parent should correct behavior that is not socially acceptable as soon as it happens. Because th these children are in these learning stages. And so if you permit them to continuously engage in poor behavior and, and don't correct it, or even if you reward it, then a big issue arises when 
they get put in the real world uh, outside of this family and people don't put up with their um, failures and their, um, the things that they learned were okay are suddenly not okay. And yeah, you can't hit people. <laughs> Just because your parent took it for a long time doesn't mean that it's okay, but because they never corrected it, they, they don't know that it's not okay. And so it is sort of your responsibility as a parent to raise strong children who understand what is and isn't socially acceptable and what's right and wrong fundamentally. And I've personally seen this with my little brother, which I just mentioned. He's much uh, younger than me and has a lot of older siblings. And so whenever he would whine or complain as a kid, well, one of the oldest siblings was always weak enough to give in and give him what he wanted. He, he just had to convince one of us to not put up with the screaming and crying for him to get what he wants. So now he's sort of learned that, oh, I can scream and cry and get what I want. And so it's taken a lot of work to try to get that out of him and make him not cry to get what he wants and actually... I, I found negotiation has worked extremely well with him, but sort of showing, uh, correcting that behavior and, because at the end of the day, if they learn that this is okay, it's not going to be good for you or them. If you, if you hold it in and so they're doing something that makes you dislike them and you haven't corrected it, then that that's going to breed resentment and then eventually that's going to erupt or uh, no eventually it's going to erupt and then from there it's going to it, it probably won't erupt at the right time it, it will erupt when something completely random happens and so when they're learning they'll just find you getting angry for what they view as no reason when really it's the buildup of stuff over t uh, of hundreds of little things over time that you just never corrected. But if you just stepped in and corrected that behavior, then you, you'll have a much better relationship with your child. But yeah, your general goal as a parent is to make your children socially desirable. And like BJ was saying, if you, as a parent, if you see your child do something that isn't socially desirable you need to snap at them right away and fix the problem right as it's occurring because as the child's developing they're taking in so much information and they're reading into situations a lot more than you actually realize and so if they do something like that if they like hit you in the face or something like that over the dinner table and you don't correct them right away then they may see that behavior as okay and they see that behavior as okay they're obviously going to keep doing it and it like BJ was saying, it may come up at a really bad time. Another goal that you need to have as a parent is to essentially raise your child to be as strong as humanly possible, okay? And sometimes parents want to, you'll see this with the overprotective parents at least, they want to protect their child from essentially every bit of chaos that could possibly seep into this child's life. And while the 
the idea behind it is good, right? They they want to protect their child, but first off, that's impossible. You're never going to be able to protect your child from a hundred percent of the possible chaos that could affect your child, right? There a hundred percent of the possible chaos that could affect your child. That's not feasible, right? You're going to at least let in 1% of that chaos when you're not looking. Okay. And so let's pretend that is your goal to protect your child from 100% of the chaos that seeps into the child's life. We know that's not possible. So let's pretend for the sake of this conversation that you protect your child from 90% of the possible chaos that could seep its way into this child's life. Okay. So you successfully mitigate 90% of it, but 10% does find its way in. Okay, regardless of your preventative measures in place. Okay, and this 10% is probably going to knock your child down and it's really going to harm them in the end because you've successfully defended your child from 90% of the chaos here. So you've, in essence, raised a weaker human than probably most of the other kids adjacent to them because the other kids have been dealing with more chaos in their lives, right? So in pursuit of trying to make your child's life better, you've made the child a lot weaker in the end by mitigating their exposure to adversity. And the next time something happens to them, it's going to knock them straight down. And which is why your goal in the end should be to raise a strong child and of course, you need to mitigate some exposure to chaos, but you need to know that mitigating all of it isn't possible, and you need to make sure you're not doing it too much, right? Yeah, and I really appreciated throughout all of this, uh, Dr. Peterson draws a lot on um, fairy tales and fables and myths and uh, sort of the first stories humans told, or if not the first, then some of the more uh, longer lasting. And it, here, he ta I think he talks about uh, how in Sleeping Beauty, the parents try to protect their child. And it, it, all the symbolism that went into that and how it didn't actually solve any of the problems. And they just ended up raising a naive uh, daughter rather than someone who could protect themselves. And sort of avoiding that failure should be a primary goal for all parents. And I, because I'm such a huge fan of fantasy, I might mention that reading this chapter and then thinking about how in Game of Thrones with Joffrey and um, Cersei, his mother, how uh, Cersei values family above everything else. And then you see the monster that Joffrey is and it's I, it's a fantasy story, and so I'm not sure how much you can take it to be uh, applicable to reality, but I, I'm sure he, uh, George R. R. Martin, the author, did a lot of research into how, um, or at least applied a lot of what he knew about raising a child and what effect having someone who uh, sort of believes the world belongs to their little ones and then the monsters that they become are just, I, throughout this chapter, I, that's one of the things that I was constantly thinking about is that sort of 
um, character relationship, and I thought it was really interesting. But we can go ahead and get... Oh. Uh, yeah, so one more thing that I want to talk about here is how you can apply the concepts he talks about in Rule 5 here to other things as well. You don't... It doesn't necessarily reside just in the relationship between parent and uh, child it could reside in other relationships as well you could apply that to relationships with your friends like if you see your friend doing something that's not socially acceptable and you call them out for it you need to have those difficult conversations with them because if they keep doing said thing that isn't socially desirable then they're going to think that behavior is okay because you didn't call them out for that I'm not saying you need to have 100% responsibility for it, but if you truly do want the best for your friends, and I think calling them out for doing something that isn't socially desirable would probably be the ideal thing to do. So that way that behavior doesn't keep resurfacing over and over again. But yeah, here we can move on to rule six here, the last rule that we're going to talk about in this, this episode here. But rule six is to get your house in order before you criticize the world essentially and the example that he brings up in this chapter is the two guys i believe it was two guys that were involved in the columbine shooting and he talked about how they had a very pessimistic view of the world and they had given up on humanity essentially and that they held up a, a bunch of anger and resentment towards humanity and there are probably a bunch of people in this world that have a bunch of resentment towards other people, perhaps their superiors or what have you. They just don't take it out in the same way that the individuals did with the Columbine shooting. But his, his main message here is in order to judge the world, in, in order to have ground to step on, you need to get yourself in order first and then in an ideal world after you've gotten yourself fixed first then you have some ground to stand on and then you can go out and criticize the world because you probably have a little bit more authority to to stand behind yeah and so it, it's really hard to judge exactly when is your house in order because you make one improvement and then something else seems to fall apart or that, that improvement leads to the other problems that you wouldn't have had had you just stayed the same. But being self-aware of just, when can you actually uh, criticize and when will that criticism actually be helpful is a great thing to know because uh, especially in the parenting chapters, what um, he often says is, uh, he, he would apply these parenting techniques when like babysitting other families' kids. And then he wouldn't mention, uh, he, he wouldn't criticize the other parents for their failures, even though he was able to succeed with their kid. Because he knew that even if, if he did tell them, then um, they probably would just find that, did that criticism would fall on deaf ears and wouldn't have any impact and likely they would try to keep their kid away from the data the year that makes them look so bad in comparison and so having that sort of self-awareness and being aware that um you know that 
sometimes criticism isn't what it takes to help a person. A lot of times it might be. And in that case, stand up straight with your shoulders back, have that difficult conversation. And just so long as they know that it's coming from a place of like legitimate care and it's not trying to be like push or trying to hurt the person or bring them down, but you actually, it's supposed to be constructive and you're trying to point out something that you legitimately believe will make them happier. I think that that conversation will go a lot better. And so just being aware of, you know, when is the right time to criticize someone? And it's generally going to be, or it's almost always going to be when you're doing much better in that area and you actually have ground to stand on and can make those adjustments rather than just throwing out what you think should work when you struggle with the same problem. And so that's chapter six was a short chapter. I don't know. Yeah, if it was like, I think it was like 12 pages in a very long book. But yeah, I mean, that's essentially all we have to say about the first half of the book. I, I know we only did the first half of the book and we're still at like, what, 45 minutes or something like that here. But yeah, this, this is a very dense book. And next week we will be doing the second half of the book for you guys and i think the second half of the book has my favorite chapter in the book so i'm glad that which chapter is that it's rule 11 11 okay rule 11 look towards rule 11 yeah rule 11 but yeah i think this book is very dense if you guys are following along with us you'll understand that it, it is sometimes very hard to grasp what he's saying at times because he has a, he has an interesting way of laying out his ideas and proving his ideas to be true at least and yeah sweet part yeah. two next week part two next week be sure to subscribe be sure to watch out uh for, watch all our previous episodes um i hope you noticed the improved audio in this one we invested in some better mics and better equipment so we are hopefully providing better content for you guys be sure to comment about how we can um, help y'all out with anything you need and um, how, how we can provide any improvement to the content. We would love to hear what books you would like to have us read. We would love to hear any, anything you would like to say about uh, what we're doing and how we can do it better. Uh, be sure to check out our Instagram and TikTok because we're posting there regularly just little clips and quotes and other things from this so you can get a little bit of this content daily and other than that we really appreciate you listening for the full 45 plus minutes and we'll see you next week. Adios.